You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To Dine for the podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Farnoosh Tarabi. Fear is going to be a part of that journey. So I can choose to try to fight it, and that's no fun. Or I can choose to invite it in and see if there's anything there that I can use with this fear to help me make better decisions and help me ultimately become more self-aligned. Farnoosh Tarabi is one of America's leading personal finance experts. She's the host of the award-winning podcast, So Money, that has earned over 30 million downloads. She is a sought-after speaker and author of multiple books. And her newest book is called A Healthy State of Panic, part memoir, part guidebook on how fear can really be a superpower to achieving true wealth and career success. I am so excited for you to hear more on Farnoosh Tarabi's career journey, her favorite restaurant, as well as why she thinks fear can be such an asset. Please enjoy my interview with Farnoosh Tarabi. Farnoosh! Thanks! Do you know, I have been looking forward to this conversation all week. I'm so excited to talk to you. And I cannot believe it's here because I feel like we've been planning this 
podcast for months because I knew your book was going to be coming out and it's still a little ways out, but I'm so glad that we're talking today and and thank you for making time and space to be on the To Dine For podcast. Thank you. The last time you and I talked, we were at a Persian restaurant in Brooklyn. The name escapes me. Oh, we were at Bijan's. Oh yes. my gosh. Oh we were my at gosh. Bichon's. Yes. And you oh. were sharing your love of this restaurant that was right around the corner from where you used to live and yeah. this food that is tied so inextricably to your culture. And I just love that conversation. Thank you. You're taking me, you're taking me back. My gosh, that was, was that during the pandemic? It was, was it during the, the pandemic. pandemic. Yes. Wow. It was so nice to be able to go back to that particular restaurant. I had lived around the corner from there for over 10 years. Yes. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think that the that I somehow landed in a neighborhood just steps away from Persian food. I don't yes. think that. <laughs> it was kismet. It was definitely it kismet. It was kismet. So I know you've moved, right? You live in a, you live, you do not live in Brooklyn, right? You are uh, somewhat of a suburbanite, if we can call you that, although you'll never really be a suburbanite. You have such a, a, a city love and city vibe. But I'm wondering, do you have a new favorite restaurant that perhaps you can share today? Wow. I live in Montclair, New Jersey, and we are so privileged here. We have so much cuisine, diversity of cuisine. Uh, It's hard to pick. I I think lately our family has been really loving this restaurant, Faubourg. Faubourg. They even tell you on the window, like how to pronounce it. It's uh, a lot simpler than how it's spelled because it's spelled F-A-U-B-O-U-R-G. And I think, you know, just supposed to roll off your tongue like Faubourg. And so we go there and it's very... It's very special. It's very nice and very friendly there. The, 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 the menu is always, I think it's um, derived mostly from Provence. And uh-huh. they, they make their own wine there. It's, they wow. have a house. They have a house rosé, which is very, very good. And what their, their story is special. And you want to support Fabour because they had planned to open right before the pandemic. They were ready to go. Mm. And then we've heard this story to, before. Yeah. And they had to sit idle for a while. And and I think that's just thankfully they were in Montclair. I, I think that's like a lot of neighborhoods across the world, around the globe and in America, where you want to support the new business and especially the restaurants because that they're they have a hard, you know, the balance sheets are harder there than probably most businesses. But I think um, Montclairians, especially, we really rallied during the pandemic and supported a lot of small businesses with intention and vigor. I hope that's how it was in in many parts of the country. But Faubourg survived, endured, and and now they're doing well. I just they have all sorts of events. I want to maybe throw a book party there, TBD. So uh, (laughs) they just, they're great. Let me stop you there because like, once again, you're picking a neighborhood gem as your favorite restaurant. I always say that someone's favorite restaurant says something about them. And you picked a neighborhood gem with the Brooklyn Farnouche. And now the Montclair Farnouche is also picking a local favorite. So that's, you want to support a local business. Absolutely. What did you think I was going to say? The ground round? I mean... (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you know, people's favorite restaurant could be anywhere. It could be back in their hometown. It could be directly in the, you are with your proximity to Manhattan. You could have easily picked, sure. you know, a restaurant right in the center of Manhattan, but you picked a local spot that that's like on your radar with kids. You're probably taking the whole family there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. It's a little fancier than where I think, you know, you would think to take a kid or your, or younger children, but they accommodate and they're very, they have an outdoor area that's sort of, it is covered. So you can be a little bit louder in there and it's okay. It's just a really lively restaurant and all are welcome, which is just what you look for, you know, in a restaurant. For folks who are not familiar with you, you are a financial journalist. You have a podcast called So Money. For a good part of this section of your career, because obviously you've been a journalist for many years before, you kind of focused on finance, but you're really a go-to expert on all things money. And for those who listen to your podcast, they love it because they're constantly getting new tips and tricks and really the psychology of success through money. And Mm -hmm. you have a new book out called A Healthy State of Panic. I am so intrigued as to why, A, you wrote this book, And what was the intention and inspiration behind it? Mm, Thank you so much. I'm so excited for this chapter in my career and the message that I want to bring to everybody. You know, I feel like as an author, and this is my fourth book, I always feel like I got to say something new. I don't want to just add to the pile. I don't want to repeat and become an echo chamber. I really feel like if you're going to dedicate the time and the pages and the sacrifices because this was such a, you know, it was two and a half years of of writing and editing. Was it really? It was a two yeah. and a half year. So it was really through the pandemic. Did you write this at the beginning of the pandemic? Because two and a half yeah, years ago. Yes, yes. Wow. I, I thought about the idea of the book a lot in 2020. And then it wasn't until it was beginning of 2021 when I actually put pen to paper, so to speak, and began to draft the stories and the outline and then the proposal. And then I went into contract for a book deal in the spring And then, so that was spring of 2021. And now here we are, you know, it was supposed to actually come out the spring of 2023 and we pushed it to the fall. I was a little sad about that in the beginning, but oh my gosh, so thankful. (laughs) Every, I could use, I could have even used more time, I guess. The book is never, you know, your books are never perfect, but I guess that's, that's fine. But I feel grateful that I actually even had all that time to put together because it was a hard one for me to write different than anything I've written my previous books were very much in the vein of personal finance. Yes. They were they were how-tos. Like my yes. previous book was like how to be a breadwinner if you're a right. woman in a relationship or the, la- the book before that was Psych Yourself Rich. So it was how to uh, integrate psychology and behavioral psychology in your personal financial life. This one was very personal. It was It started, Kate, as really for me, the intention was I want to write a collection of essays about growing up as the daughter of Iranian immigrants as a young person in America trying to straddle these two cultures of America and Iran Mm. and trying to find my identity, trying to like understand life and my role in it. Mm. And, you know, they were supposed to be these wild stories. And by wild, I mean like that time I shaved my unibrow in (laughs) seventh grade. And that time I, you know, wanted to change my name to Ashley and (laughs) Jennifer (laughs) and then Nikki. And then I think there was a, a Tina at one point. And so it was meant to be these series of essays. But when I looked closer at what these stories were really capturing, I noticed this overarching pattern that revealed its own big story, which is that I grew up with a lot of fear. 
Mm. Fear of rejection, loneliness, missing out on everyone else's fun. You know, my parents' recipe for living a safe life was stay home. (laughs) (laughs) Would you say your parents were risk averse? And do you feel like you yourself are risk averse? It's funny. I think we can be, my parents demonstrated the greatest risks that most of us will ever take that, you know, in our lifetimes, insofar as they moved from Iran during a revolution and came here, that's, you know, that's a triumph. That is, that takes a lot of courage and taking risk. And so I I joke that once they landed on American soil and they were like, okay, we're here, you know, they're like, we made it. And they're like, no more risks. <laughs> Let's hunker down <laughs> yeah, and be like, quietly successful. <laughs> we are not pushing our luck any further. We are, you know, we we took all the risks. We flew 6,000 miles on a plane to get here. And now it's all about hunkering down and following the straight and narrow. And I think that while my parents are extremely courageous, they are also risk averse. And that's kind of the book. It's like, you can be both. We live in a culture that is very polarizing. You're either fearless Mm. or stricken with fear and paralyzed. Mm. And there's no appreciation of saying, well, hey, yes, I feel fear and maybe that's okay. And maybe there is actually wisdom in that. And you and I would not be sitting here having this conversation had it not been for fear, all of these centuries and generations protecting us. Right. And so all I'm saying in this book And it's not a little thing because I do think, again, that our culture is so fear averse. It's so anti-fear that fear can be a friend. For me, it started out as a young girl, not knowing what her agency was or how to have agency, that fear did dominate. Fear was, it does have this ability to paralyze us and make us feel worse off. But then I think as adults, as we become older, we have an opportunity to say, I'm going to have a relationship with this emotion. Mm. I'm going to treat it as valid as I do my happiness and my joy that these sort of bad emotions, and I'm using air quotes like fear and sadness, grief, anger, we want to try to ignore them as much as possible. Culturally, we're just like, no, that is not the way to the promised land. That is not how you feel fulfilled. That is not how you accomplish goals. I beg to differ because when I look at my life today as a woman who is running a business, managing a family, putting one foot in front of the other, happy most days, not all of them, but I recognize that fear has helped me get here. And what I mean by that is that when I get scared and like the world's a scary place, that's like almost one of the first lines in the book. (laughs) I accept that and I accept that, but I accept that I have a responsibility to do what I can to be truthful to myself, accomplish what I set out to accomplish and Fear is going to be a part of that journey. So I can choose to try to fight it and that's no fun, or I can choose to invite it in and see if there's anything there that I can use with this fear to help me make better decisions and help me ultimately become more self-aligned. Because as I was growing up and I was challenged by fear and I was the poster child for fear, I mean, I literally, I was called in Farsi, there's a word called tarsu. Tarsu? Tarsu, T-A-R-S-O-O. Tarsu. And I was like, that was me. I mean, if you ask anybody- You were a fearful kid. Yeah, scary cat. Do you think you were a fearful adult? 
Sure. <laughs> yeah. So this is very true to you. It, so really, this yeah. book is a memoir. It is mm-hmm. a, a collection of stories that really are your origin story. And, mm-hmm. and to, uh, you, were, you and I are both Massachusetts girls, yeah, but probably yeah. had extremely different experiences growing up. And you are sharing your truth for folks to understand a little bit of, of kind of what has shaped you and, yeah. and where you're headed. You know, it's interesting when I grew up with a father who is extremely anxious. And I grew up with a British mother who was like the poster child for like, keep calm and carry on. So like the exact opposite. So I was around a lot of fear and a lot of serenity. And Mm -hmm. and I was kind of like waved back and forth. So I, I feel like what you're trying to say in this book is the the beauty and the importance of both. Yes. And how you know, ultimately the goal is not to walk around terrified all the time. That's not what I'm saying. Although there are moments that we all have, and I think fear is universal. And I I hope that whether you are a daughter of immigrants like me or not, I will venture to bet that everybody is intimately aware of fear and has their own sort of origin story around fear and their current modern relationship with fear. So the goal is not to walk around being scared all the time, you know, I, I actually think that those of us who claim to be fearless, we are not giving ourselves enough credit to say that actually on the path to fearlessness, I had to reconcile with my fears. I had to unpack them. I had to look at them. I had to have a conversation with them. That happens sometimes subconsciously. Those who are really good at it, at good at having that healthy state of panic, the promised land is fearlessness, I suppose, to an extent, but we have to appreciate that there is a relationship to be had. And you can claim to be fearless, but also let's recognize that there was a moment or there were periods where you actually had to stare that fear in the face. That's empowering. I think that's what we need to recognize. We sort of skip that step in the narrative. Mm -hmm. We just, there's so many books about fearlessness, like just do the thing, be courageous, close your eyes and just do it. Hold your breath and just do it. (laughs) It's like, I can't. (laughs) We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, Thank you to our sponsors. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. 
American national agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. Really, I'm actually surprised to find that you're a fearful person because you've taken so many bold risks, so many, you know, bold steps in your career that have have been successful. And, you know, you and I met in full disclosure when we both worked at uh, CBS, WCBS, you know, just to be on television is terrifying, right? Like, so to choose that career path is to rumble with fear just in and of itself, not to mention all the things that go with it, you know, as far as being part of that culture and choosing that career path. I'm just wondering, like, what kind of coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. did you develop early on in your 20s, 30s, maybe even now that you're still developing that has helped you? Because I think a lot of people are going to recognize that fear in themselves and wonder, like, where do I begin? Yeah. Oh, I love this, uh, this example. I have this example in the book, and I've used it many times. I think it's part of part of my theatrical training. I was a theater rat growing up. I used to do a lot of like plays and musicals. And a technique that you learn a lot of times when you're doing stage work is to sort of be very conscious of your surroundings, right? You're part of a, you can also apply this to sports, like you're part of a team. And so while you're very focused on what you have to deliver and in broadcast, that's like your news report, your live report, you also want to be cognizant of your surroundings and to try not to as much as possible center yourself so much that you sort of become blind to the reality of what's actually happening around you. You want to be able to find that connection and work with that connect with with all the, you know, with all the externalities around you. Very specifically, I, you know, I remember there was a time when I was about to go on camera and I was going to be seated next to the one and only Susie Orman. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm very nervous. I've never met her. And had you already kind of launched into finance? Had you already yes. started? So yes, you'd already this been was, a financial this journalist. Was, this, this was after my third book. I was in my mid 30s, I think, mid late 30s. And uh, Money Magazine had invited me to come to do a recorded interview on camera with Susie Orman, moderated by the editor-in-chief at the time of the magazine. So I was excited. I was nervous. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And I start to, you know, in these moments when we feel like we're in the presence of greatness, I tend to shrink. I tend to shrink myself. I tend to think, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I start to doubt. I start to have imposter syndrome, all of those like silly things. And Susie walks in. I'm in the green room. I'm actually, I think I'm getting like my hair done or my, I don't know, it's a hair and makeup chair. And she walks in with her assistant and says, hello. I say, hello. It was very nice, but that was it. And then she went off to like sit on the couch or go into another room. And I thought, I started to psych myself out. 
You know, I was like, oh my God, she's not having a conversation with me. She doesn't like me. This is going to be awful. All these like thoughts. I was like, you know, this is how I walked into this. And so then we go in, we do the interview and we're getting mic'd and we're having a conversation. And uh, I recognized in that moment that I needed to lean out. I was so centered on myself and like how I was going to appear and what did she think of me? First of all, nobody is thinking about you more than you think about yourself. So Mm -hmm. let's just accept that. And Mm -hmm. I was so in my own head that I think that when I got on to the stage and I was able to sort of lean out, it was a physical movement. It's actually, I had a I interview in the book with this woman who teaches people how to like sort of be comfortable on stage. She says that there's an there's like a physiological benefit to leaning out, putting your shoulders back, taking a deep breath, looking at your surroundings. It's a conscious move. And in that moment, I realized like I may not be the same person as Susie Orman and I don't have the millions of followers and the, you know, she's got so much experience but I'm still me. And I was invited to be here. This is not a competition, right? In my mind, I was like making this false sitcom out of the whole thing. And reality is, is like Money Magazine had seen us both as peers and had brought us on stage to talk and share and provide value. And I said to myself, you know, I'm not here to try to one up her and she's not here to try to one up me. It's really about contributing what we know best. And I rec- in that moment, I took inventory of that. What do I know best? So in these moments of also fear where you're like feeling the panic, it's about what is so true to me and my domain that is inarguable that mm. no one can take this away from me. I know this more than anybody else. And for me, that was a few buckets. It was knowing how to talk about being a mother who is a professional, who is a breadwinner in her marriage who is also a, like, I guess I'm a geriatric millennial. So I could speak generationally. I could speak from uh, the point of view of a woman, being a woman, a mother, an entrepreneur, but like this is, these are all my truisms. And there was no second guessing that. And then Susie has her host of like expertise, you know, as, as someone who's maybe more from the Gen X and someone who is gay and from someone who is you know, also like a huge entrepreneur and has been teaching people about money for much longer than I have. So she has like this long history of educating people. So on and forth. And so, but even so, there was a moment during our interview when I said something like, you know, it's important to put your oxygen mask on before help before helping others. It's this metaphor that we all know. And in the finance world, it's essentially like don't lend money to others before you, you know, have saved money for yourself or don't maybe give away your money until like you have a foundation. And Susie said right away after I said that, she said, you got that for me, girlfriend. (laughs) And that expression. And I kid you not, I don't know. Has she trademarked that? I don't think she has. Well, and because I had, I had intentionally forced myself to relax in that moment. When I, when fear showed up, it was like telling me like, Hey, Farnoosh, relax, lean out, be yourself. And when I had, I had done that work up into, and so she says this to me and I'm in a, I'm in a good place. And I say, I think I got that from American airlines. <laughs> <laughs> Not you, Susie. No right. offense. And, and you know what? Everybody started to laugh. Yeah. Everybody, Susie cracked up money magazine editor cracked up. I was like, I was a little nervous saying that, but at the same time, it was like literally the first thing it was instinctive. It's because I 
like to think I'm a little funny and it came out naturally. And so I say in this, in the book, in this, as I put a bow on this story, I say, I know I walked into that relatively scary chapter in my life, this like big intense moment where I had a lot of self-doubt and I ended with just selfies because by the end of it, we were like taking pictures and she came over to me and she said, you know, you're a strong woman, Farnoosh. You're a strong woman, Farnoosh, she said to me, and I'll never forget it. It was like an unprompted nicety from the Susie Orman. (laughs) And I uh, consider that moment a triumph for me only because I didn't allow myself to do what fear probably would have wanted me to do at first had I not actually said, hey, what are you here for? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to remember about myself? When we listen to fear, it's an opportunity to, I think, self-identify, to say, oh, this is actually who I am. This is what I want to protect. In that moment, I wanted to protect my dignity. Mm. (laughs) I wanted to protect my body of work Mm -hmm. and what it stood for and not allow myself to shrink myself in the presence of someone that I still think is just an icon. She is, for sure. And there's so few female financial journalists, yourself included. So like Jean Chodsky, Susie yeah. Arma, there's you, you, you guys are in a very uh, rarefied air, a niche. Is there anyone in that world that you haven't met that you would like to? Ooh, oh my gosh. Um, no, I, I have a great <laughs> job, you know, just the other day. And now I would expand that to now I want to meet all like, I want to meet Michelle Obama. I want to meet Oprah. I want to meet Oscar winners. I don't know. I feel like you're right. I did grow up sort of in the trenches and I I have had, I've been in this long enough. Let's celebrate that for I mean, think about it. When you first started on this path for financial journalism, like to think that you have now really met everyone that kind of falls into that category you're yeah. expanding your vision for what's possible for you. But like, I'm sure that Farnoosh didn't re- think you would exhaust the list of like notables in the world of financial journalism. So like, wow. Thank it you. Really, Thank yeah, you. That's really it, cool. It comes, it comes with age. It comes with experience. <laughs> when, you, when you meet these people that are, for all you know, like you've only seen them on television or in commercials or what have you. And so in your mind, they're larger than life. And then when you meet them, of course, they still feel larger than life. But I think what I found, and I and I think it's because I grew up the kid who constantly moved and I was always the new kid. I was always the new girl in the classroom. You have to immediately like find a way to connect. It's a Why survival. Were you moving, Why were you moving so much when your parents were risk averse? Well, we didn't like move Across country, although my parents did, they doubt they now live on the on the west coast, and oh. we started on the east coast. Listen, I think it's just part of the whole. Like they weren't afraid of moving because I mean they just went over six thousand miles to come here. So moving like twenty miles east. So we used to move counties and towns because my parents were in the pursuit of the American dream, and so we started in Worcester, mm-hmm. which is then and still is a hardworking city, but not where you might go to like. Um, for my parents, at least, it wasn't like it wasn't their forever place. You know, it's kind of a transitory city. Um, people go there to get school. They have they maybe start their families there and then they sort of move over to like the suburbs, if you will. And so we moved to more suburban areas that were a little bit more chill, like Auburn and then Shrewsbury yeah. and then yes. moved to Philadelphia. Oh, I didn't know that. OK. I, and even within those towns, I switched school sometimes. So it was like. I had to call, I, I'm constantly calling back to those early days because 
gosh, I mean, what is life if you're not like constantly throwing yourself into new experiences, right? And I always I mean, find what that- you probably gain from all those moves. I mean, because yeah. you're constantly having to make new friends, you're in an uncomfortable situation. And my gosh, you picked a career that puts you in uncomfortable situations constantly, a lot of fear. So, you know, it really served you well. Yeah, it's almost like I ask for it. I ask for fear to show up. It <laughs> likes me a lot. We have this like codependency. I don't know. Well, when you were telling the Susie Orman story, I meant to make this point, And that's like, I feel like the two emotions that tell a person a lot about themselves, obviously fear, because what you're afraid of is really what you care about, right? Like if you're exactly. afraid, it's like, it's showing you like when you're really afraid, it's like when I, I have more fear over my kids than anything in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't call myself necessarily a fearful person, but I've become one because when a kid, when a kid's, my kids are about to start school. Are they going to have the right teacher for them? Are they going to make friends? Like the fear I feel is real. And it it shows how much I care about them. I could like almost start crying because when you really are afraid of something, you're trying to protect something. I also think the emotion of envy, like when we're, we're kind of like feel that feeling of jealous. I'm not really a super jealous person, but when I do, I always know it's showing me something that I care about or something that I would like to have. And I always try to like make it a positive I'm like, okay, yeah. let's like, well, okay, what does this mean? You know? Well, it's so great. I'm, I'm so glad you have that appreciation for things like jealousy and envy because right. It's really just what we feel is what we feel. Can we yes. just accept that? Like all feelings are valid. There was actually a study that came out this year. It was early reported in the New York times about, well, it was a, it was a bunch of universities and they looked at when people have even just a neutral relationship with these bad feelings like fear, anger, sadness, so they, they measured and saw when people had a neutral to a positive relationship with these feelings, they were happier than people that had a negative reaction mm. to fear, anger, sadness. Mm. I think it's because it takes emotional strength and knowing yourself to be able to look at these, what we call bad emotions and go, where did you come from? Mm. What are you trying to tell me? We need yes. to be patient. It requires a patience. It requires a little bit of work. It requires a little bit of getting uncomfortable. Yes. But on the other side of that, you're left with being someone who is so much more resilient and so much more able and capable of dealing with these emotions the next time they arrive. Yes. And so I'm getting goosebumps just like saying that out loud because I, I didn't always appreciate fear in this way. And I think that I'm not here to say like, I just was born with this superpower. I think I had to, as an adult, reconcile because I saw that fear was not this emotion that just goes away forever. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. keeps coming back. Ooh, yes. And so, so like waves, wa- like waves wave. of fear. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I thought, okay, I need to find a way to make this work for me mm-hmm. and appreciating too that fear, again, it, it is primal. It is instinctive. It shows up for a reason. And our job, our opportunity is f- to find out what that reason is. Ooh, and that's good. really, it's about like, as adults now, we have resources. We have not just money, but we have community. We have experience. We have ambition. These are all, I consider all these rich resources to say, okay, if you want, if fear wants me to protect my children in your case, and I have also two children, my son said to me this morning, mommy, you're really overprotective. He's nine. <laughs> I was like, yay, I'm doing something right. I was like, that's a compliment. Thank you. Um, as I was layering on the band-aids on his knee because he fell this weekend, he's like, mom, like this is like, 
<laughs> oh, it's like five mom. inches of band-aids. <laughs> and I was like, do you want more band-aids in your backpack? <laughs> like, We have a nurse's office. But yeah, I think that for me, I had to sort of just learn how to become more mature with fear because it was not going away. You bring up such a great point. When we can notice the emotion and sit with it instead of immediately reacting, there is great power in that. I'll give yeah. you an example of the opposite. This this three days ago, I got extremely angry, it, which is very uncharacteristic. And I immediately reacted. And it, again, it, A, it showed me something I care about. Okay. And B, it reminded me something that I always knew and I've always done, but in this, you know, I made a mistake. You never react in that moment, right? When you do right. feel the fear to sit with it instead of let that emotional reaction, it's, it's when we re- knee jerk reactions to anger or fear always lead to bad things. Right. <laughs> so it's right. always like, how can I be more emotionally intelligent and emotionally aware that when you feel the, those strong emotions, they are there to teach you something. And if you can just hold on, even if it's for like five minutes before reacting, you're going to be in such a better place. Yeah. Your story about your kids, okay, this is the story I wanted to share about my kids too, is that speaking of not making new jerk reactions, my daughter fell off. The She was playing outside. She's six. And after school one day, she fell on like the jungle gym. It was fine. It was just, she did, she fell on her, the side of her face. And mm-hmm. so it was a little, it was a little bruise. And so the next morning she was feeling really insecure about the color of her face and scared that scared. She told said, I'm scared to go into cl- the classroom today. Kids are going to make fun of me Aww. and I don't want to go to school. So her fear in that moment as a child, because she has no other experience with life. She's like, I just got to sit home. I guess that's the only thing I can do. And I said, no, I don't think that we want to miss out on school because your teacher would miss you. You would miss school. I mean, listen, if we're worried about, if we're scared of being humiliated or what have you, then, okay, what is this fear wanting us to protect? It's wanting us to protect our sense of safety and security and and acceptance at school. Mm. So what can we do? What are our resources? I wasn't going to put out my wallet. You know, I always think like, oh, well, you know, if we're just rich, we wouldn't have, we could be fearless. No, no, no. So I said, let's write your teacher a letter. I got her ready for school. And then I wrote her teacher a letter. I also emailed the teacher just in case the letter never got to her, but I just covered my bases. I wanted to communicate somehow to the teacher about how my daughter was feeling and what she was afraid of. And I wrote, I said, you know, Colette fell on the playground. She's afraid the other kids are going to make fun of her. I just want you to know because we try, you know, in my mind, it's like, find the people you can trust. When you're in those moments of fear, who can you connect with, whom you trust? Maybe you can strategize. Mm-hmm. Maybe you together, you can come up with a solution. And so my daughter's Colette, she's like, thank you, mommy. I, I'm, I'm happy to know that my teacher at least knows how I feel. So she goes into the classroom. No sooner than like an hour into the day, I get an email back from her teacher. She said, thank you for your note. I pulled Colette aside. We talked about it. And with her permission, we shared her feelings and her fears with her classmates. Oh, wow. And we said, Colette's having a little bit of a rough morning because she fell on the playground yesterday. Her face is bruised, as we can see. And she was just worried and scared about how you all would react. And do you know what happened? A little girl raised her hand and said, that was what happened to me too last week. I know how it feels. And so there was this exchange of empathy the kids later like gave her hugs. And mm-hmm. so what started as this fearful morning ended with 
just happiness and connection and so much relief simply because we sat with that fear and said, what can we do to make this feel not so scary for you? That's awesome. How can we tell this fear to go away, but in a way that doesn't feel like we are rejecting it or hating it or dismissing it? It's like, actually, thanks, fear. You showed up and like, actually, now we have a better relationship with our classmates. The kids are closer. How do you want your daughter to handle fear differently than you did? Because as you said at the beginning of this conversation, in a way, fearful farnoosh actually yeah. led led to good things, right? You, you yeah. call it a healthy state of panic, that mm-hmm. fear in a way is a good thing. So uh, I'm sure when you look back, you wouldn't want to change anything because it's led to who you are. However, as you mold Colette, what would you like her, was there anything you would tweak or anything yeah. you would like her to know about her relationship with fear. Yeah. I mean, I wish somebody had said to me when I was a little girl that when you're afraid, it's okay. And when you're afraid, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we feel like our fears are so personal and so like no one's going to really understand. I was the young girl at school who was you know, eternally new. (laughs) I was always trying to find new friends. On top of everything else, I had a culture that was very different than everybody else's. And so there was rejection. And I faced a lot of like, you know, I wasn't the popular kid and, you know, don't feel bad for me. Everything worked out. But at the time it's (laughs) gutting when you're 11 and you're not being invited to the parties and you're not looking like all the other blonde, blue eyed girls named Ashley. And Mm -hmm. I think that What I later learned about when you're feeling the fear of loneliness or rejection, I wish that I had known earlier that sometimes it's an opportunity to find your own people, right? Like when you face rejection or when you fear rejection, maybe it's this instinct in you that's like, I'm not actually in a safe place or Mm. I'm not in a a community that appreciates me. Mm. And to go and find another community, Mm. another play group. That's good because I feel like for me, like when I felt that, like, like I didn't belong, my reaction was always like, I'll just persevere. I'll just handle it anyway. Like I'll just carry on like my British mother. Like I didn't actually maybe take the cue or the clue that, you know, maybe there's another environment out there that's better. Yeah. And look, you sometimes you can't move as a kid. You can't right. easily go and find that other group. But sometimes, you know, when my kids say, oh, this kid was mean to me or bullying me, I think that it's easy to quickly center yourself as the target there. And I say, you know, when kids are being mean or rude or what bullies, it, it's often not even about you. Right, it's something totally. that they, they're they suffering. There is something going on that they haven't dealt with and their reaction is coming out as not being nice to you. And so and no one ever told me that either as a kid. I just thought these were like bad kids who had it out for me. There was something wrong with me. You know, to, to lift a line from the book, sometimes your fear of rejection is telling you that the reason that you're not being accepted has nothing to do with you. Right, right. Your That's religion, true. your gender identification, all the, like people don't accept that. It says more about them than you. Other people's rejections says more about them than it says about you. It may say nothing about you, actually. So that's hard to accept, of course, as we're young and we haven't quite lived life enough to to go through enough hardships and come on the other side of those hardships to say, okay, this, I will get, I will see through this. 
But having mentors, having people, adults around you saying, you know what, this is hearing it is sometimes just, you know, eventually the kids will get it. I think you hear it enough and then it'll click one day. Not everyone knows this about you, but that you are into stand-up comedy and that you Ah. enjoy uh, doing stand-up comedy, which has to be one of the scariest things ever. So my question is, what has stand-up comedy taught you about fear and why do you enjoy doing it so much? Oh my gosh. It's the epilogue in the book, actually. I, I write about the night, the first night I went on stage and told some jokes to a crowd that had paid $30 for a two drink minimum and some amateur comedy. That's me. And I learned that, first of all, when you're afraid of doing something, it's a sign that maybe you should do it. Mm-hmm. You should do it. And now, not all the things. I'm not going to jump out of a plane. I am afraid of that. I'm not going to go swim with sharks, you know, in the middle of the ocean with sharks, not doing that. But I think that for me, comedy was a combination of something that was both scary and so magnetic to mm. me. Like I was so drawn to it. There, The fear was there, but I was still drawn to it. So that's always mm. a good sign of doing something. Even though you're scared, there has to be an additional element excitement. of just you gotta be excited. excitement. Yeah. Like, I mean, and it it, 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 over, it superseded the fear. Like I was like, I might not get some laughs, but you know what? Like, I have a feeling that on, on the other side of this, like I will be happy and proud of myself. Wow. I won't say, oh, why did I do it? I would be sadder if I didn't do it. And so I went up there and now to be completely transparent, this audience was not just randoms, you know, from the streets of New York. These were people we had invited. Okay. <laughs> they were family friends of and friends. <laughs> it was a warm crowd. It was a warm crowd. And this was my the end of our a six or eight week boot camp that I had done in stand-up comedy. And so the end of that, they set you up and they give you a stage and it's really nice and they film it and all the things. It's on YouTube if anybody ever wants to go down that rabbit hole. But when I went on the stage and I talked about a lot of what we've talked about here, this is before I had the idea for the book, actually. This is when I was just writing more stories and going back down memory lane and finding the funny in my personal upbringing. And I was bringing those stories to the stage and it was really resonating with people. And I, even when I put it on YouTube and Facebook, like strangers were, it, you know, the people, I knew that it wasn't just people being nice. Like people were like, oh yeah, that, uh, you know, I was raised by a Jewish mom or an Italian mom or an Indian mom. And like, I gave a lot of like the Persian mom jokes too in the, in the set. So all this to say, I get off stage. I do this a few more times throughout New York. Unfortunately, it was like right before the pandemic. So uh, I didn't get a whole lot of opportunities after that. And I'm hoping to get back on stage. But, you know, I joked. I said, oh, you know, someday I'll get a Netflix special. (laughs) Uh, But instead, I got a book deal. Because when I put this video on Facebook, a literary agent who had been following me saw it, reached out and said, this is funny. Do you have more of this material? Mm. And I wrote right back and I said, absolutely. Uh, however, got to write it first. <laughs> you mean written down? Exactly. That's what I said. I said. It's all in my, I mean, I've lived this, so it's there. It's all there. She said, please start writing. Ah, so that was the inspiration really for the book was the sense that, yeah. And then you kind of took it from there. At what point as you're writing these stories, did the, the theme emerge and the title? Well, I believe it or not, I had the title before I had the stories. Mm. I just... And it's, this is so funny. I don't actually write about this in the book because I think it just went in 
it just got cut, you know, as, as we have to cut some of our, uh, as they say, uh, you have to kill some of your babies or something mm-hmm. when you're writing, you know, and you're working creatively in your stories. I was interviewing another Farnoosh on my podcast, one of three Farnooshes in the world whom I have had the opportunity to meet and speak to. Okay. So whenever I meet a Farnoosh, I'm like, you got to come on the podcast. Sure. So I meet a Farnoosh and we've been friends chatting on Facebook for a few years. She's also the daughter of immigrants from Iran, but grew up in a different part of the States, Uh, went on to become successful as a Farnoosh would running a business. She runs a yoga practice. She's got a book. She's really sweet. We actually met for coffee one day and then had her on the podcast. And as I was asking her, as I ask a lot of my guests on the show about childhood and lessons about money growing up and also just general themes from from growing up, I said, how would you characterize your upbringing? And I kid you not, she said, it was like a healthy state of fear or a healthy bit of panic or something like, it wasn't exactly my title, but I said, it just... A light bulb went off. And I was like, whoa, we are more similar than I ever thought. Yeah. And I said, I said to her, and it's actually on the podcast, I said, I'd love to steal that for a book title one day. She said, go ahead. It's yours. So she can't come (laughs) out. Thank you, Farnoosh. Thank you, Farnoosh. Did did you give her a credit in the book? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And she'll be getting a handwritten book and a handwritten book. Exactly. And I mean, I'm in a a signed book, but maybe I'll have to handwrite it for her too, the entire book. as my gratitude. So it's just so kismet, right? And I, so to answer your question, the book title happens around, you know, 2017, the comedy happens the following year or two, and then the book. But I think it was thanks to my phenomenal editor, Michelle Herrera Mulligan at Atria Books, when she read all the stories that I'd written, thinking in my mind still, this is just going to be a collection of funny essays that sometimes have to do with fear. Sometimes I don't know with what, but that's where I kind of stopped. My creative juices stopped flowing. And she said, you know, I think that coming from you as somebody who has been in this expert role for so long in your career that people would listen to you even beyond just like the funny storytelling. Like they want advice. (laughs) They want takeaway. They want a big idea. And she said, you know, and sometimes when you're writing, it really helps to have a clean set of eyes look at your stuff and kind of see what you're not. And she said, I think this is something about fear. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I grew up terrified and things worked out. She's like, there it is. (laughs) And that is the quote of the podcast. I grew up terrified and things worked out. And my mother actually says that to me all the time. I'm like, oh, I was so, you didn't let me do anything. You just were so terrified of like, I couldn't do sleepovers. I couldn't eat Fruit Loops. I couldn't watch Punky Brewster. I couldn't cross the street. I couldn't ride my bike. She's like, well, what do you want? Your life's good, right? (laughs) Things worked out. I said, "I yeah. Your mother did a good job. Regardless, she did a great job. Well, Farnoosh, I can't wait to read the book. It's called The Healthy State of Panic. Thank you so much for spending this time on To Dine for the Podcast. And you know what's funny? As you were speaking throughout this past 49 minutes, um, the light behind you kept going on and off. And I'm such a uh, I'm such a believer in signs. I'm like, is there a is there a grandmother? Is there a Persian grandmother that has oh. been called in during oh my God. this well, podcast? I, I write a lot about my grandmother who's passed in the book. Are, do you really? Because yeah, I'm serious. And no, I, I'm I was not. like, I'm actually was wondering if it was like timed with your great moments. Like, like oh my was God. it like every light bulb moment, your light behind you was going Jeez. on and off. Um, it's Mamani. Yes. Yeah. 
And it's funny because she has a way of, um, I write about this too in the book. She has a way of showing up even in her, uh, for, oh. in her, in her afterlife. Oh, I think she's yeah. here now. I think she was here during our podcast. Oh, so well, cheers to you and cheers to her. You. What is her name? Well, will you call her Mamani? Mamani. Uh, Mamani. Yeah. And, um, a really, she is the sort of unsung hero in the book. The woman who I think taught us all how to be, have a healthy state of panic. Mm. She's the matriarch of fear in our family. And so far as when my parents were young and living in Iran and recognizing all that was going down the revolution. And then there was an opportunity to come to the States. It was my grandparents, Mamani and her husband just like pushed them out. You know, they said as much as we are afraid of what is unknown in America and the new life you'll have, like this is certain what is happening here, the dangers, the sadness, the fighting, the loss of freedoms, this, this is certain. So I am more afraid of what is certain than what is uncertain actually. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. So she, you know, got them their one-way tickets on TWA to Logan (laughs) airport. And I say, the rest is history. The rest is history. I say that the last chapter in the book is about the fear of losing your freedoms. And so Mm -hmm. she, she makes another appearance in that chapter. And I think that that's an opportunity when we sense that we are losing our freedoms, whether that is the freedom to live our lives, how we want, who to marry. I think that that's fear nudging us to protect them at all costs. And so when we do like there is a legacy that you are leaving. Like people are watching your children, your community, they are taking notes and you're laying the path for them as well. When you are willing to fight for those freedoms, you're helping those, you know, who will uh, come right up against before you to be able to have hopefully a, a smoother path. So yeah, I love fear. I love fear. I can talk about it all the time. Big the fan. Ma- I love how you said the matriarch of fear, Mamani. Very, yeah. very cool. Well, thank you, Parnoosh. So great to see you again. Continued success. Thank you, Kate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefortwithkatesullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.